Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and welcome to our broadcast. I'm Monty Judah with Lion of Lamb Ministries, and this is an Arab Shabbat service for B'nai Shalom, the Internet uh, congregation. And many of you are joining us from all over the world, and we sure appreciate it. We're glad that we're able to come into your home and you can join in with us. A uh, couple of quick announcements for you. Today, this Sabbath, is the 42nd day of the counting of the Omer. We have one more week, and on the morrow after the seventh Sabbath, which will be the seventh Sabbath next week, we'll be observing the Feast of Weeks and uh, the 50th day, sometimes called Pentecost, which means 50. And uh, we're going to be having a conference here in the Norman area. Many brethren are coming in to join us. We have certain speakers coming in for the weekend. And we're intending to enjoy the day of proclamation. I encourage you, wherever you're at, to get ready to observe that feast uh, with us. Um, you might notice that this week uh, others are going to be observing it quicker. Uh, they're following the Jewish calendar on those things. Don't worry about it. We're all, we're all going to get there eventually, and the Messiah will come back and straighten all that other stuff out, and we'll be fine. So we encourage you to um, join us in keeping the feast. In fact, there is a way that you can, even though you're not physically here with us. We have set it up to have an online broadcast that you can join in and watch uh, the services and watch the teachings that we're going to be doing that weekend. Uh, and you can go to ShavuotEvent.com. Any donation uh, would be appreciated, and we'll set it up so that you can view the broadcast. Uh, so, also, I want to remind you, off in the fall, that we have the fall feast coming up, and we have a, a major effort underway for getting ready for tabernacles, and the RV part of the campus filling up very quickly. If you have an RV, you, please get your registration in uh, so you can be a part of that, and uh, we have plenty of room for people with tents, and, of course, we have the weekend pass if you're not able to come for the whole thing. Uh, go to tabernaclesevent.com, all one word, and you can be a part of that as well. So without any further ado, let's go to Kiddush and we'll get our Sabbath underway. Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family and welcome to our home. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. Now the Kiddush, the blessing over the cup. 
Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Pri HaGafen Amen Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now the Hamotzi, the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadunai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Husbands, let's bless our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you and bless you and thank you for the wonderful wives that you've given to us in our homes. Father, I thank you for the wonderful wife that you've given me. I pray that you would bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her as she takes care of our children, as she teaches and educates them, and as she takes care of the home and me. Father, I confess that I love her with all of my heart, and I pray that you would pour out your very best blessing upon her on this Sabbath day. I love her and thank you for the unmerited favor and grace that you have given me, Lord, through her. So I thank you, Lord, on this Shabbat, and thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. And now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. Amen. Now let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu et Arunai Hamvorach. Baruch Arunai Hamvorach Leolaham Vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha Baelim Adonai Michamocha Nedahar Bachudesh no rat Do we want?
wonders, O Lord, who is like you, O Lord. Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu et derech, ha-Yeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et hashabat, la'asot et hashabat, ladrotam barit olam, b'nei ovayom b'nei Yisrael otit le'olam, k'sheshet yamim asadonai et hashamayim v'et ha'aretz v'yom hashavi shavat v'yinafash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you'd all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem, Kivod Mahuto, Leolam Vayed. Yeshua Hamashiach, Hu Adonai. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai Ochecha, Bechol Levavcha, Ufkol Nashicha, Uvechol Meodecha. Veheyu hadevarim haale asher nechime zavcha hayom alevavecha. Vashinantam la venecha, vadepardabam beshiftacha, bayetacha, uvlatacha, vederech ushakpika, ufkumika. Ukeshatam la ota yadecha, veheyu la totavolt binenecha, uketatama mozuzo betecha, uvisharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Father, we just thank you for this Shabbat. We thank you for the opportunity to come before you, to worship you, to praise your name. For you are holy, Father. We invite you to come and join us in our midst, Father, as we lift your name high.
If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Numbers, to chapter 1, as we begin a new book of the Torah for this Torah cycle. And as always, as you open the scripture, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch atah Eloheinu melech haolam, asher b'chabanu mikol ha'amim, venatan lanu et torato, baruch atah Adonai nonten ha-torah ha-amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. As I th- our Torah portion for this week is entitled Bamidbar, which comes from the first phrase of the book of Numbers where it says, In the wilderness the Lord spoke to Moses. As we begin a new book of the Torah, I always like to take the opportunity to kind of outline the book of what we're going to be experiencing for the next couple of weeks and give us kind of a primer as to what we can learn from this book as we continue on through our Torah cycle. I've said several times before that each book of the of the Torah kind of means and represents something, but every once in a while, the title of the book sometimes is a little misleading, if you will. We uh, talked about when we were in the book of Exodus, that the book in the English is titled Exodus. However, uh, in the Hebrew, the name of that book is Shemot which means it's the book of names. And so we learn the names of Moses, the name of God, and we are introduced to the character of God through that book. Um, So if we look at it, and the title is just Exodus, more than half the book, the children of Israel already had left Egypt. The Exodus was already done. So the rest of the book is learning about God's character and Him giving His commandments, His word, His instruction to uh, for the children of Israel to build the tabernacle and for Him to dwell in their midst. it's almost like the, the book would be better titled, um, in, God Introduces Himself to the World Through the Plagues of Egypt and, and As He Dwells with the Children of Israel. That's a better description for the book rather than Exodus. We just got done with the book of Leviticus. And I've said many times that people skip over that book because they say, oh, that just has to do with the Levites and the priesthood of, of Israel. And so I'm not a priest, so that book doesn't have anything to do with me. Well, yes, there are some passages in the book of Leviticus that are pertains specifically to the Levites and what they are to do. Only a couple of chapters. The majority of the book is teaching you, any one of the household of Israel, to be holy as God is holy. That's what the book is about, and that's what many of those instructions have to do. And so if we look at that, um, the Hebrew name of that book is, is uh, Vayera, and he called. And so anyone who is called of God, those instructions are for us to learn how to be holy as God is holy. It also teaches us how to render to God what belongs to him. Any offering that is made to God, certain things belong to him. Blood of every sacrifice belongs to him. You give that back to God, that doesn't belong to you. So Leviticus is more about be holy for he is holy and render to God what belongs to him. Now we come to this book. In our English, it's called the Book of Numbers. Now, as we look at that, yes, it's that comes from the Greek Septuagint giving that title because our book begins with a census that is taken. And we have a series of numbers of counting the number of men of the children of Israel. And there's also a census that will happen at the end of the book. And so there are, yes, there are numbers in this book, but that title is very misleading if somebody were to simply look at that. Some people might not like numbers or math, and so they might, they just, if they want to skip the book of Leviticus because it has nothing to do with them and just the priests, well, then they might skip the book of Numbers because it's like, ah, I don't care about numbers. Get me to another book of the Bible. 
they would be very mistaken to do that and to pass judgment upon this book. The title of the book is Bamitbar, In the Wilderness. And what our story has is the children of Israel leaving Mount Sinai and going into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And there will be a series of things that happen in this book that will cause the children of Israel to make a mistake. That They will rebel against God. God commands them to do this and they'll do something else. And they will be constantly traveling in a wilderness of trials and tribulations and struggles that they find themselves in. That's really what this book is about. And what, is that, what does that do for us? What does that really teach us? Whenever you go through a struggle or a trial or you're in some kind of wilderness, what you have to do is that will show you, that will teach you who you really are. Any sort of challenge that you face, how you handle adversity, you can't ever learn that about yourself unless you face adversity. And that's what being in a wilderness does. The, uh, the uh, word bamidbar, midbar is that word that is the wilderness. And these children of Israel are going to travel and they will struggle and they will, and we will learn who they are when faced with adversity or when, when they rebel against God. So if we kind of look at the whole story of the Torah, Exodus, we learn the character of God. Leviticus tells us what we are to do. Numbers, or Amibar, teaches us what they actually did when adversity came against them. When God told them this, or when God told them no, how did they react to that when that happened? And that's really the nature of this whole book of being in the wilderness, and it teaches you who you are. Now, for us, in our modern day, we don't all live in the wilderness. We don't live in nature. We don't struggle to uh, procure food and shelter and, and keep ourselves you know, uh, safe and, and protected as the children of Israel had to do because they were all nomadic at this time with tents and they had to get up and move and travel and being in the wilderness. So we physically sometimes might not identify with being in a physical, natural wilderness. But we understand the concept of it, the concept of being in a place where you're where it is a struggle to live and get from one moment to the next. Something else that's very interesting about that Hebrew word midbar, which is wilderness, is that the root of that is dabar, or you might have heard before, or davar, which is the Hebrew word for words. That's what, what, what is spoken. And so it's like there's a connection between words and being in the wilderness. So today, in modern day, we might not be in a physical wilderness, but you know what we have? We have a lot of words. A lot of things that are said and spoken and words we hear on the news and words we hear from our brethren and words we speak to people. And you know what? I, I thought about this just this morning. That it's if you lived in a wilderness and if you're in a, in, a, in a wild community where every single day we're having to find food and shelter and things. And if everyone in the community has to work together for a common goal, are there as many words and opinions that people speak at that time? When they do speak, what are we talking about? We're talking about, well, you know, let's figure out how to cook that, and we need to do this, and we've got to tighten up the shelter here, and we've got to do this here. And so when you're in a natural wilderness, there's simply less things to say because everybody is working toward a common goal, and your survival depends on the work that you do. You get done, and you're tired, and then you, it's like you don't got anything else to say. You almost don't have the energy to have an opinion when that's what, where you find yourself. 
But in today's culture, in today's modern society, we don't have to work and labor for all of these things. We live in the lap of luxury and comfort and air conditioning and homes and a soft bed to sleep in, much more than a great percentage of the rest of the population of the world. And so when we do that, when everything else is comfortable, well, then what are we going to talk about? Well, that's when everybody has an opinion to say, and we live and we find ourselves in a wilderness of words here in our lives that we experience today. And it's a different kind of wilderness. It's a different kind of struggle when it comes to relationships that we have with our fellow brethren, with how we react to something we hear on the news, with how we react to how somebody, not, not just what they say, but how they say it. And so we're in the constant struggle. And so when I say being in the wilderness, then people actually relate to the concept of being in a place where kind of every day is a struggle to get from one moment to the next emotionally and spiritually because so many words we're constantly having to deal with on a regular basis. All of those things are there to teach us who we are and how do we react to adversity or anything that we might find, our, find ourselves in, any situation that we might find ourselves in. We, and sometimes we find ourselves praying to the Lord and asking the Lord to, to resolve the situation that we're in, often between us and another brother. We don't pray to God that it's like, Lord, please help me to find my next meal. No, instead we pray to God and we say, please help me in my relationship with this person or please heal their heart or heal my heart because of the situation. The, the, the prayer, we still pray to God for him to meet our needs. It's just the type of wilderness we find ourselves in is a little different than it may have been in the past. So that as an introduction to the book of Numbers, the book of Bamibar, is what is what are the uh, challenges that we're going to face? And if you run into challenges and adversity, you will learn who you are, who you are before God and how you react to those situations. Now. As we do get into the book, and it is the book of Numbers, and there is things that there are counts that take place, we always are in a struggle to figure out what does all of these counts mean. As we go through and as we uh, look at our Torah portion for this week, it begins in Numbers chapter 1, extends through chapter 4 at verse 20. And there's a couple of things going on that the children of Israel, they are numbered. They are, there's 12 men that are called by God to be leaders of the tribes of Israel. And they will do a count of people, of men, who are able to go to war from the age of 20 and up in each of the tribes. And we'll have a bunch of numbers here listed that for each tribe there's a certain number of men that are there. Now, one of the things that I've always believed is that numbers mean things. There is probably a greater studies, greater study that can be done on what all of these numbers mean, how they relate to other parts of Scripture. There's greater studies that can be done of all the names of the leaders of the tribes of Israel. And so I know that there is something deeper going on here inside the Scripture for those that want to really dig in and, and look at things. I believe there are parallels to other spiritual truths in all of these things that we read. There's no idle word in Scripture. There's no idle number in Scripture. I believe God is so smart, He can connect that to something else that is greater. That's, oh, that's a study for another time. What I would like to do is I always like to look for what, how can we be encouraged and strengthened by the words that are being said here? And what is it that a nugget that we can take from our Torah portion each week, and how can we be encouraged to, to continue to walk out our faith?
There's something that I want to connect to. I do want to connect to another part of Scripture, that when it comes to the children of Israel being numbered by God, that it was not necessarily the reason why they were being numbered is not because we needed to know exactly how many men could go to war. Did God need to know that? I don't think so. God knows the number of hairs on your head. He knew exactly what these numbers were. So does God need to know these numbers? No. But we have that instruction for us here. Does God need to know if there is a majority of people that, you know, which people are here? God doesn't need to know that. But what God is doing here in this place is he is setting apart his people from the rest of the world. He is setting apart the children of Israel, his chosen people. And there is a distinction between them and the rest of the world. He is creating that distinction. And every single person had a place and a purpose, whether they were naturally born of Israel or whether they were one of the nations who came and were adopted in and who were some of the other slaves that left Egypt with the children of Israel. All were numbered as a part of the families of Israel. Everyone had a place and a purpose. And this instruction also gives them that they would all, when they came together, they were organized together as one company, as one group of people. And each man stood in the tribe where he belonged under the banner or the standard of that tribe. And everyone had a place and a purpose. And that's something that we can always be encouraged by is that God knows who we are. Even though there's billions of people in the world, that he knows you, knows you personally, and you are counted by him and you have a place in the, cho- in the family of God, in the family of Israel, and you have a purpose and a place in his kingdom. That's one of the things we can always be encouraged by. And that when we look at this, um, the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, the, we are, they are going to go in and the Lord knows what's going to happen. The Lord knows that even though all of these men have a place, have a purpose, have been called by God and have this special privilege to be numbered amongst these people and have been given the instructions of Torah to walk uprightly before the Lord, we know and God knows there is still there will be rebellion that comes later. And there's a connection here to the things that the children of Israel face in the wilderness to what also other prophecies that his the future descendants will also face as well. I want to take us to the book of Ezekiel to chapter 20. And there is an incredible parallel between this entire chapter and the book of Numbers. As we are instructed... Um, that the, the various judgments and things and the mistakes that the children of Israel uh, made in the wilderness are the same sum of mistakes that the children of Israel and, our, and their descendants will also make those same mistakes as well. In Ezekiel chapter 20, there's prophecies that kind of connect. And as I read here, I'm going to start at verse 33. You'll, you'll see some of the parallels between the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness and some of these other prophecies that come from this prophet. Verse 33 of Ezekiel chapter 20. As I live, says the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with fury poured out, I will rule over you and I will bring you out of the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with fury poured out. I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will plead my case with you face to face just as I pleaded my case with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will plead. Plead my case 
with you. We see the connection here to being in the wilderness, the children of Israel in Bamidbar, in the wilderness, and that the same sort of thing with great power and an outstretched arm, he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. And when it comes to the end of the age, he'll do the same, and with great power, he'll bring us out of the nations. Now, let me read this, verse 37. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I will purge the rebels from among you, and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the country where they dwell, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Okay. So that kind of relates to what we kind of know is coming with the children of Israel. We know that there will be rebellions. We know that there will be rebels among the children of Israel. And those people will not get to enter the promised land. That generation, because of their transgressions, will rebel against God. And they will not get to enter the promised land. And their children will. And so here we have the exact same sort of language here where it's like, I'll bring them out of the country, but they will not enter the land of Israel, those that are the rebels among the people. Very interesting phrase here. I will make you pass under the rod. Many people have questioned exactly what that means. However, if you read your Torah portions on a, on a weekly basis and read them word for word beyond what maybe your local Torah teacher or your internet Torah teacher might say, then that phrase should hearken to something that you heard very recently. In fact, last week's Torah portion, the very last couple of verses of the book of Leviticus, we heard that same phrase, pass under the rod. So if you would go back with me to our Torah portion and go back just one page before the book of Numbers to the last chapter of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 27. If, if you look there at verse 32, this is an instruction that was given us right at the tail end of the book of Leviticus. Now, one of the things we don't understand, though, sometimes, is how exactly were these books broken up? Was it just a brand new scroll that Moses got and then started writing the book of Numbers? Was Leviticus and Numbers really interconnected and it's just a continuation of the same story? It appears that way. So when we look at this, we see our, you know, uh, book breaks here in our Bible to what well, we're starting a new book, but you always got to connect it back what just happened previous to know what's going on. Well, it's very interesting we find this commandment about the tithe of the herd that comes at the end of the book of Leviticus, verse 32 of chapter 27. And concerning the tithe of the herd or the flock of whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord, and he shall not inquire whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. And if he exchanges it at all, then both it and the one exchanged shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed." Interesting. This goes back to what we were talking about when people were tithing of their either their uh, crops or their tithing of the herd. This is determining what belongs to God. So we have this counting of uh, the herd and this whole idea of count, coming under the rod. What would happen in ancient times is shepherds would have the sheep or whatever their flock was coming through and they'd come through a narrow gate and they'd be able to count every single one as they all came through a narrow gate from the field or the pasture where they were and then into the pen where they belong. And they'd all come narrowly and the shepherd would stand there with his rod and would count the sheep. This was to know who, how many were there and that you made sure you had all your sheep. And the thing that the instruction has is every tenth one shall be, belong to the Lord. Every tenth sheep of the flock, that this was a method of counting sheep. 
not to fall asleep, but counting sheep to know whether you had your whole flock there and what belonged to the Lord. So all of them would pass under the rod. And then every tenth one, that was it. However the sheep came, and if they were all barreling in or whichever one got in front of the other one on the next one, the tenth one belonged to the Lord. And they would mark that on the sheep. Um, to my understanding, they would either have some sort of dye or something. They would mark the back of the sheep. And you'd be then, once they were all in the pen, you could look and you'd see the dotted ones knowing that's one-tenth of the flock and those ones belong to the Lord. And you're not to inquire about whether that's the right one or does God really want that one or, oh, that's my best sheep and you're telling me that God gets that one? We're not to inquire that. That's what it says here in the scripture. Whether good or bad, you're not to say, oh, well, no, I'll, I'll keep that one that's marked and I'll give this one to you instead, Lord, and we'll mark that one. It's like, well, no, they're both marked. They both belong to the Lord. At that point, if you want to give a little more than a tenth, I think God will happily welcome that. So, no, we're not to inquire good or bad, but this was a distinction of counting the flock to know what belonged to God. If you put it that way, then as you turn the page in the Bible and you get to the book of Numbers, and then we're going to start counting the children of Israel. There's a connection there. Who belongs to God? What part of the flock of the sheep of the world belongs to God? And just as sheep pass under the rod of a shepherd, it says in the book of Ezekiel that all the household of Israel shall also pass under the rod. And he will then determine when that happens who is of the flock of Israel, who is the rebels and who belongs to God. That's the connection here. I mean, you might as well, you might as well scribble out the title of this book and just connect it all. It's all still one story of what we're trying to learn here between the end of the book of Leviticus being holy and then how the children of Israel are counted by God. So that all pass under the rod. And the thing is this, is whenever you find yourself in a community, in a congregation, and sometimes you might find yourself in a small fellowship. We live in a community and maybe there's some big mega churches in your area and they've got tons of people out there. And your fellowship is a small fellowship. It's a small little community. And you might question and say, man, why, why isn't there more people here at this place that we feel like we're, we're led of the Lord and the Lord's revealed new things and new truths to us. These other people, they're, they're still our brethren, but why is it that we, that we don't fellowship with them? Well, the thing that you might consider is that you've been counted by God to be a part of that remnant that belongs to him. And that just so happens to only be a tenth of the whole flock. That's what it is. It's just it's the smaller group. So when you might find yourself in a small group, be encouraged that that's who you are among, that you're among the people that have been counted by God and every tenth one that came under the rod, that's where they found themselves. Now, <laughs> you might have some interesting sheep in your community sometime because nobody, they don't, you don't get to exchange the, the, the kind of the weird sheep here versus the best looking sheep or whatever. Whichever one God numbered, that's kind of what you get. And so, but we should be encouraged that those are the people that have been set apart by God. Now, that also doesn't change the fact that we're all a part of the same flock. We're all a part of the flock that belongs to the good shepherd. So we can't sit there and just be the, the, that the tenth can't turn and complain about that they weren't in the majority of the 90%. And the people that are in the 90% shouldn't complain about that they aren't part of the 10%. This is the whole idea where the members of the flock need to stop vexing each other and having a problem with whether they're this part of the flock or that part of the flock. We're all a part of the same flock. 
We need to understand that. We need to come to that understanding when it comes to being a part of the household of God. The rest of the world is out there and all the wolves and all the the things that would come against us. We need to understand that we are all called by God and all a part of our flock. But sometimes there's a part that is separated and set apart to God. That continues on through the, the first couple of chapters of the book of Numbers where we will number the children of Israel. We will list the leaders of the tribes of Israel and how many are in each tribe. Some tribes were bigger than others. That's just the way that it was. You can't sit there and then you're numbered in, in one tribe and that's a smaller tribe and then you have a problem because you're not in the tribe of Judah because that's a bigger tribe. Excuse me, we're all part of Israel. That's the place and purpose and, and that's where God has placed you in the camp. We can't keep arguing and yelling at the people on the other side of the tabernacle and complain about how they do things because they're all a part of Israel. And sometimes, you know what, we don't all look the same either. I guarantee you, the tribe of Ephraim, which Ephraim and and Manasseh, and they were sons that were born of Joseph in Egypt. They were born of Egyptian, uh, an Egyptian mother, that their descendants, and as they came along and grew, they kind of looked more Egyptian than the families of Jacob that came from the land of Canaan. They looked different. They did. And when there were other Egyptians that came out of Egypt during the Exodus, and they were then needing to be adopted into a tribe, many got adopted into the tribe of Judah because of its size. We believe many of uh, foreigners were adopted into the tribe of Judah. But I bet there were some Egyptians that got adopted into the tribe of Ephraim because that's where their buddy was, and they also kind of looked there. And so we sit there and we can complain about, you know, other people of the faith that look a little different than we do, but all we're doing is arguing with our brother and vexing the guy on the other side of the tabernacle instead of understanding we're all a part of one company and one people. We are all set apart from the nations to be the people of God. He sets us apart even further, God does, where he gives us a certain roles to play, the Levites, were separated out of the children of Israel and given a different task than everybody else. Our scripture goes on, especially in chapter 3 of the book of Numbers, where it says the Levites, are they, a separate census was taken of the Levites to count them separately than everybody else. And then it's also instructed the Levites were dedicated to God instead of the firstborn of all of Israel. That was the original commandment that the firstborn of Israel, back in Exodus, we had a commandment where it says the firstborn of everyone who opens the womb has to be redeemed before God. Well, as time has gone on and whether it's through um, through the sin of the golden calf or otherwise, what is instead is the Levites are then set apart separately and that they are dedicated instead of the firstborn of Israel. And so there is a distinction that is made between the Levites from the rest of the house of Israel. It goes further. There's a distinction that is made from in the families of the Levites. That there were three sons of Levi. There was Gershon, there was Merari, and there was Kohath. And that each of the families of those had different responsibilities in the tabernacle. I've said uh, before the sons of Kohath had one of the most amazing privileges that their job was to carry the holy articles of the tabernacle. The altars, the Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread, the menorah, that they went to, got to go in and they would carry those things. And that was one of the greatest privileges that they got to have. It was the, uh, the Gershonites that got to carry the coverings and the screens and all of the textiles of the tabernacle. And they were instructed and that was their task to do as well. The sons of Merari, they took all of the boards and the pillars and the sockets and all of the hard, heavy things that built the tabernacle. Each one had a specific role and responsibility. 
to do those things, to serve the Lord in a certain way. And it it expounds from that to everybody in the whole tribe, of all the tribes in the whole house of Israel, everyone had a role and a plan and a purpose for the glory of God and all of those things. And there was distinctions made. And even from the sons of Kohath to Aaron and his sons, there was another distinction. God is in the process of continuing to distinguish his people to find out what is the remnant of those who are drawn closest to him. And that does not necessarily say or mean that we get to lord over the fact that we're closer to God than anybody else. I guarantee you that it would not have gone well for Aaron and for Moses that that is their, that everything that they did that is like we get to be the leaders and they always lord over the fact that they're the leaders of the tribe of Israel. Have you ever worked for a boss that was like that? That always had to state and remind you that he's the boss and always giving his title and doing that. How did you like working in that environment? Not very good, I imagine. And that's not what Moses and Aaron did. They simply who God called to be in each place and in each station of life. The only trouble we run into is when somebody has a problem with the station of life that they have been put into. That's what uh, adversity is. When you find yourself in a place and then you uh, want to do something, something you want to have, you want to have some sort of privilege, you want to be numbered or counted in a certain way. Well, I'm in the tribe of Simeon, but I'd really like to be in the tribe of Judah. And so you have a problem with where you are. That's when you're going to create problems inside your community, inside your fellowship, and there's going to be a problem. And then you're going to rebel against the system that you find yourself in. That's what you have to be cautioned against. And that's the whole concept and the idea of being in the wilderness is who you are. How do you react to the word no? If you are told no, if you want something and somebody tells you no, somebody higher that has the authority to say so, such as God, and he tells you no, you're not going to do this. You might want to do this with your life. You want to, might want to have this plan of purpose. I want to work in ministry. If God doesn't have a plan for you to work in ministry, it's not going to go very well for you. Maybe I want to do this. I want to be this kind of person and I want to, I want to have this kind of calling. It's like, no. If God has a different plan and a purpose and a calling for you, how do you react to that? How do you react to the word no? That's what teaches you who you are. Who you are before God. Are you going to be one of the rebels that is not counted at the end of the age? Who doesn't get to go into the promised land? Who doesn't get to see the land of Israel? Even though you had a place. Even though you were counted. You all passed under the rod. But you were one. You were one of the bad apples that didn't like where you were counted. That's something we should all look and do some self-reflection here. We do, we, we do this all the time when we read the scriptures. We go through... The book of Leviticus, much of it, we have all this instruction for Leviticus and even the instructions to the priest, you know, when the priests start to diagnose leprosy or something. We have the words in our copy of the book and we, you know, before going to the priest, we can do our own self-reflection on whether something is, is needing correction. Are we unclean? Are we holy? Are we righteous? Are we obeying the commandments of the Lord? We can kind of do some self-diagnosis here to, to figure that out. And as we go through the wilderness, as we go through the wilderness of words that we live in, and as we study the ancient stories of the children of Israel going into the wilderness, can't we do some self-reflection to see what would we have done in that situation? 
What would we have done when a couple of brethren start making a golden calf? And so they're tired and impatient of the leader that they have. They start making a golden calf. Are you going to go and join them? What were you going to do? Now, obviously, you sit there and be like, oh, of course, I would be holy. Are you sure? Are you sure you would have been one of those ones? Okay, so maybe you got past the golden calf. Okay, so then when they rebelled and when somebody came back and they said, there's giants in the land. God said to take it, but we're going to surely die if we go into the land. Are you going to listen to that report and say, oh, it's like, I don't want to go now. Or you go, well, we read the book and then it's like, oh, no, I wouldn't have been that person at all. You sure? Or when Korah started his rebellion and they all stood up and 250 princes of Israel, leaders among the community. Maybe he's one of your leaders. One of those princes was a guy that you related to and then he's going with Korah and he wants to go worship there. Are, are you going to truly stand there and, and not go against Moses or are you just going to join in with your buddy? How do you know where you would have fallen in these any of these rebellions or any of these situations that took place with the children of Israel? Until you actually face that kind of decision before your eyes in the physical place where you are, you're really not going to know what's deep down inside of you until you actually physically face it. We can read the stories safely in our reading chair with, you know, electricity and a nice snack and a warm cup of coffee. And we can read the Bible in a great lap of luxury and say, oh, yeah, I would have totally done that. Until you actually face that adversity, until you actually find yourself in that wilderness, well, maybe you won't know what you would do. And that's why we encourage people to uh, get out of their comfort zone from time to time, not just from a spiritual counseling basis, but from just a general counsel to people. Get out of your comfort zone and find out who you are. Figure out who you are, what you believe, who you believe in. It's one of the things that we do, we can practice whenever we go out to the Feast of Sukkot and we leave our homes and we go camping. And that camping experience that we have, that we experience at the Feast of of Sukkot, or even if you don't have never kept Sukkot, but I'm sure you might have gone on a family fishing trip or a camping trip, and you'll face some adversity, such as, you know, is is the food work, is the air conditioning working, can you get the fire started, did you catch the fish that you wanted to catch, all of these things, and these little family get-togethers that will press a family together, and you'll see exactly what kind of family you are when you're in that situation. So we encourage people to go into the wilderness, from time to time, do some practice, do some rehearsals, because when it comes time that you actually have to make a life or death decision in the wilderness that you find yourself in, you want to have the experience of knowing what the right answer is, know when it is time to act when God calls for you to act, or if others around you are acting and it's contrary to God, will you have the discernment to stand still and just see what happens? Sometimes the wisest thing that somebody can do is to be silent or to stand still. When we face that adversity, we have the fight or flight reaction. Well, there's another one. There's freeze. Fight, flight, or freeze. Well, when you're sitting in a situation and you're called by God and God puts you here in this place, and then there's something that you run into, you can choose to fight. You can choose to flee. But sometimes the right answer is to simply freeze in place, stand still, and see what God is doing in that situation. That's not always the right answer, but sometimes that it is. So in each situation you find yourself in, whatever wilderness you find yourself in, be encouraged, continue to stay faithful to the Lord, to know that the Lord is testing you and that he is counting you just as if you're passing under the rod 
And just hope and pray that you that the place where God counts you and the mark you find on your back or the marks and the scars you find on your face, if those are simply not the way that God has counted you among his people. Let us be encouraged in all the things and all the places that we find ourselves in and stay faithful to God that he has even counted us from among all peoples, giving us his Torah, his instruction, and his son to be our savior. Amen? Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you for your teaching, your instruction. We thank you for the start of the book of Numbers, the book of Bamidbar. And Father, may we be encouraged, may we learn from your word and your instruction, Lord. And I pray that you just continue to count us among your people, Lord. And I pray that we would continue to behave appropriately in all things. May we not find fault in our fellow brother, Lord. And may we not find, may we find contentment in the place where we find ourselves in, whatever station of life we find ourselves in, whether that's our age or our social status, Lord. Father, you have counted us and you have put us in the place where you have called us to be for your glory and your glory alone. Let us, Father, I pray that we would just stop vexing each other, Lord, that we would stop coming against our fellow brother, Lord, even though they look different than we do, even though they might act differently than we do, knowing that it is for God's glory that they are where they are. And so, Father, I pray that we always be encouraged in the job and the task and the position you've put us in, and let us react appropriately when, Father, sometimes you, we don't receive what we want in the same way that a parent never gives the child everything that they want. So, Father, I pray that we be encouraged. May we continue to grow in our faith as we face the wilderness experiences of our lives. And, Father, we thank you for your salvation, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for choosing us from among all peoples, Lord. And I pray that all of our brethren, Lord, that we be counted at the end of the age. And may we find our name in the Lamb's Book of Life. And may we hear those words from you, Lord, well done, good and faithful servant when it comes time to hear those words. So we love you and bless you and thank you on the Sabbath day. In Yeshua's name, Amen. And now the blessing after the Torah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Natan Lanu Torah Temet V'chai Alam Natabetocheinu Baruch Adonai Nonten HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. If you would, um, turn your Bible now to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the New Testament portion that goes with our Torah portion of this week, uh, the book of Numbers, uh, deals with a large number of people forming a body. And just as the book of Numbers starts off with the first census, the first count of the tribes and how all of the people were counted, um, and part of the understanding of that is that they do count. They have value uh, being a part of the body, being a part of the children of Israel. And so this portion is from Paul in which that he is encouraging us to all be in unity, to be part of the same body um, in the Lord. So if you would follow along with me, I'm going to read from, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 20. And so let me read for you a little bit. But now there are many members but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again of the head of the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which are we deem as less honorable, 
on on these we bestow more abundant honor. And the unseemly members come to have more abundant seemliness. Whereas our seemly members have no need of it, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to the member which lacked, that there should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the other members rejoice with it. Now you are the Messiah's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the assembly first apostles, then second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings and helps and ministrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have the gifts of healing, do do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. What Paul is basically doing is kind of the obvious. This may come as a shock uh, to some of you, but every one of us have individual characteristics. God has made us unique in very specific ways. For example, your fingerprint, nobody has your fingerprints. Your fingerprints can, if they are identified, can select and identify only you have that pattern. And our DNA, that only we have the exact distinct DNA. Now, I'm not going to try to explain twins uh, to you with regard to that, but DNA is now the preferred way to do identification individually to a person. Um, we are, we're different. You know, God has made us unique and special. But at the same time, it's very clear that God wants us to be part of a bigger body, to be part and members uh, of that, and specifically the assembly, to be the assembly of the Lord, the, con- the congregation of the Lord uh, for that. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt, and it makes this point that they were a mixed multitude, they weren't all descendants of Jacob. There was a whole variety of folks that had joined with them, all believing and trusting in the God of Israel. Uh, Some were slaves from other nations that were freed and released from Egypt when the children of Israel left. Some were Egyptians who started to believe in the in the one true God, the God of Israel, as opposed to the Egyptian gods. There was an entire assembly of different people that came, and it's very clear in the description of them, especially the book of Numbers starts to bring this out, everybody was counted. It wasn't, well, let's count all of the descendants of Jacob, and we don't have to worry about the others. All, everybody was counted. Everybody was a part of that assembly. And the same is true of us. Now, Paul uses the example of some features of the body. A um, little personal testimony here for a moment is uh, in the last several weeks, I've been suffering from a little case of shingles. A uh, very minor case, not not as bad as a lot of people get it. And it's affected this nerve and it's come down this arm into this hand and affects these three fingers here to the point 
that if I touch the tips of my fingers, it stings, it, it hurts. Um, and my hand aches and it hurts and, and it stings. So I've gone to the doctor and he's given me some medicine, the, you know, antiviral medicines and some stuff that will calm the nerve down. And I put some pain patches on in an effort to get that nerve to relax because it's <clears throat> the nerve is agitated and swollen and hurts. And it's just my left hand. By the way, I have discovered there's a lot of things I'm used to doing where that left hand is a part of it. And I'm right-handed. And this left hand helps me to carry bags of groceries and pick other things up. And all of a sudden, I go to grab it, and I start to pick it up, and I go, <gasps> you know, and that rascal hurts. Um, and I have discovered, you know, as, as a result of having this case, just how important that left hand is to me. And in particular, these little dinky fingers. Now, I can still operate that, you know, just fine. I have no issue with that. But that little finger over there, you know, uh, that is part of the grip. You know, if you don't have that finger, when you go to grip something, you can't quite grab it uh, strong enough um, to be able to carry the end of something or carry a bag and so forth. And Paul uses examples like that to explain how important uh, every member of your body is to you. Um, I have a gift uh, that was given to me many years ago. Uh, having the last name Judah, it was a, a very special gift that was given to me by some believers uh, from Africa. And they had a lion's claw. And they took the smallest claw, the, you know, like the, the little baby finger claw, and they made this thing into a beautiful necklace for me. And it hangs, you know, and, and I've got a lion's claw. Now, the reason why they did it was they wanted to give a personal gift to me and that was representative of them. And, and because I'm named Judah, they were thinking of the lion of Judah. And so that was the connection. But one of the things that I learned from that that really struck me is if you were to pick a claw out, why wouldn't you have picked a big one or the, you know, the, no, they gave me the little one. And the reason why they gave me the little one is because the little one is the one that when the lion grabs, that's the one that secures and holds it. It doesn't do the major work. It, it grabs and the prey cannot get loose. And so one of the things they felt was that, that I helped people to get a full grip you know, on the scriptures, to get to the substance of the scriptures. And so they gave me that little lion's claw. By the way, it's not really that little. It's a full-grown lion. That, you know, but, but it's the little claw of the lion's paw. And it, it struck me as an example that, like what Paul's talking about here, that we have a tendency to uh, minimize uh, the more what we seem are the more insignificant parts. And when in truth of fact, if you don't have that little insignificant part, you're going to have great difficulty in accomplishing the things. And if a lion doesn't have that claw, the prey continues to get away. I mean, he can scratch the prey, but he can't quite grab it and hold it. And in your grip, you need that finger. That finger needs to be operating to be able to grasp uh, something and hold it with strength uh, in your hand. So that's just one little example.
Now, let's step back and let's look not only at the assembly that came out of Israel, but let's look at the assembly amongst us. Uh, Paul, in this book, in the first part, uh, in the first chapter, makes mention of, for you see our calling, brethren, how there are not many mighty, not many noble that are called. But God has called the base things, the ugly things of the world, together in his assembly that he might confound the wise. That, it, that you know, the creator of the universe um, selects that part of us amongst our communities that other people wouldn't have selected. It's a little bit like, you know, when you were a kid and... Um, yeah, maybe, and and the kids would all get together, and we're going to have a, a baseball game. And you know how you pick two captains, and the captains start picking kids, and and of course they get the big kids first, and then they get the ones they know can hit the ball, and the little kids at the end they get picked last, if they get picked. And um, uh, a lot of us are the little kids, but I'm sure you probably had the experience. I certainly had it. I remember we were splitting up and deciding on who the team members, and there was a, a guy that was a captain of the team, and he selected the, the least of them first. And I remember the joy of being selected and being chosen. I, I got to be picked first to be on the team. And what it did for me and ministered to me and edified me was incredible. By the way, after he got done selecting everything, we won. Our team won. And so it was even more powerful for me uh, about the value of it. And one of the things I have learned in ministry, that we'll have a lot of brethren that will come and want to join with us and work with us, and the ones that really get the job done, the ones that do the best are the humble ones. Uh, you know, certain ones will come and they're energetic and have strength and capability. They have a tendency, <clears throat> quite honestly, to start good, but they don't finish so good on the task. But the humble ones, they start okay and they keep working until the task is completed. And that's what we really needed done. We needed the task completed, not with great zeal how we get it started. And so, you know, we've seen different types of brethren, and and I've had the opportunity to work with many brethren in the assembly, in the congregation, and what Paul speaks of here is absolutely true. Um, So it's there's nothing wrong, let me just say this, there's nothing wrong to be the humblest or the most timid or the smallest, or whether you esteem yourself as high as other people esteem yourself. The Lord knows who you are. You've been counted individually. You've been selected to be part of the assembly, and you can be a part, and you're an important part. Um, I always tell this story, uh, humorously I tell the story, about the man who is, is praying one day, a uh, very devout man, he's praying and he's asking God, he says, oh God, please, please use me, you know, in a powerful way for your kingdom. And suddenly, Gabriel the angel appears to him and says, son, God has heard your request 
And he's going to grant your petition. He's going to use you powerfully in his kingdom. And he says, oh, praise God. He said, what does he want me to do? Does he want me to do kind of a Moses thing or an Apostle Paul thing? What, what part does he want me to do? And Gabriel instead says, no, he wants you to live kind of a mediocre life, make a series of good and bad judgments, but you'll be an example for others on some cases what not to do. And he said, well, I kind of wanted something more than that. And he said, we already got a Moses and a Paul. We need a guy just like you now. And there's a lot of times we don't see our personal value as an individual and how it fits into the group or has an impact on the total group. I want to encourage you. I want you to let you know from this passage that Paul knows and understands this. Certainly Moses understood this. Real leaders in congregations understand this. And in fellowship, you have value. I don't care if it's only just a little bit. I don't care if it's just a little finger's worth. You're important. And God has selected you, chosen you, to be a part of the body. And so there is no task that is not needed. There is no task that isn't truly important. All you got to do is have something like I just had, and all of a sudden I've discovered that left hand is every bit as important as that right hand. And by the way, those fingers down there are extremely important to me. Let me give you a case in point. I write on the keyboard right now that finger, that finger, and that finger hurts like the dickens when I hit a key on the computer. And while I'm writing and trying to accomplish some things, it suddenly becomes very apparent to me how important those three fingers are over there on that hand. I, I'm not able to complete the task of writing without being in pain because they're important. And by the way, when they're in pain, the rest of me is in pain. You know, I, when those suffer, I suffer. You know, and when they're working good, I'm happy they're working good. Um, and the same, you know, this is the same example uh, that Paul is giving for us here. Now, I want to shift gears just a little bit on this passage because I, I um, definitely want to draw out something that he says at the end of the chapter. He talks about the different ministries uh, that we have um, in, the, in the whole assembly. In other words, how God operates. He starts off there in verse 28, and he says, God has appointed in the church, in the assembly, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. And he's talking about the people who, those three positions that come in and really stimulate the assembly that helps build the assembly. A teacher will come in and begin a teaching, and people are drawn to the teaching, and next thing you know, there's an assembly. A prophet will come in and speak forth and proclaim certain things, and all of a sudden people want to know that information, and what else does he have to say, and and the assembly begins to come there. Apostles do a whole work, a whole ministry work. They can come into an area and help minister to a whole group of people and bring resources to bear to help to establish ministry and aid to many people, and, and an assembly is built. If you get the combination of all three of them working at the same time, different individuals working, you can build an assembly to the Lord very quickly. And, and uh, he, he's, he's addressing that, but he's also talking about, well, even those are individuals. 
even those have distinct elements to it. In the course of my ministry um, and dealing with other brethren, sometimes there's this moment where you go, well, you know, let's describe so-and-so's ministry. What, what is the function that he seems to be doing? And I've, I've heard all three with regard to me. I've had some people say, well, you're really just a teacher. And then I've had some say, no, 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 you have a prophetic calling. You know, and then some are saying, well, given the whole work you've done, it's more apostolic. It's more an apostle who's created things. It doesn't make any difference. Really, it doesn't make any difference. One, one doesn't outrank the other. They're just different works. They're just different parts of the same body. You, you, and you need those parts and you need the things that they're able to do. Now, he goes on further beyond those positions, and he poses the question, verse 29, all are not apostles, are they? Oh, that's right. There's very few of those in the assembly. And just because God selects a person to do that level of work doesn't make them so-called better than another person that's in the assembly. It's just the work they've been called to. Um, and, whether, and then he asked also the question, are not all, um, are not all prophets, uh, are not all teachers, are they? I know some brethren, wonderful brethren, they are never going to get up and teach. And yet they're good brothers and they're important to the assembly and they accomplish a lot of different tasks to the benefit of the assembly. The assembly would not be able to function without them being present. And, um, you know, everybody seems to think it's just that leader that gets up front. No, it's not. It, I mean, that's important, um, you know, for the assembly. But there's a whole bunch of other tasks that are just as important. And if you don't have those parts, it's not going to work. And Paul's emphasizing not everybody does the same thing. Um, there is one exception on the teaching thing that I want to point out. It says that elders, and Paul instructed this, that one of the qualifications of elders is that you have to be able to teach. And for you to be an elder in assembly, a spiritual elder in assembly, your house has to be in good order and you have to be able to teach. Because in the, in the position of oversight, you have to be able to give instructions and correction occasionally. Um, let me go on a little bit further. Now he is addressing uh, spiritual gifts. And by the way, as you know, in the whole evangelical movement, uh, church, uh, that we've all come out of, and even in the Messianic movement, we have certain people who um, have the gift of speaking in tongues, and they promote that very strongly. In fact, I've actually had people come up and ask me about the Messianic movement. Why don't I see more people uh, speaking in tongues? Why don't I see all these other things that I came out of? And one of the things I've shared with them is from the scripture. I said, not everybody has the gift of speaking in tongues. And oh, by the way, Paul says, you're supposed to desire the, the, the greater gifts. Why are you focusing in on one of the minor gifts? Why aren't you preferring, you know, that you would love to have the gift of prophecy or the gift of faith? You know, why, why is it we don't put the emphasis on the greater stuff? Why do, why do we focus in on the minor stuff? You know, that we see, and, oh, by the way, not everybody gets it, and there's not everybody understands it uh, as a part of it. And he clearly teaches, both in this chapter as well as in chapter 14, 
that these individual different gifts, which are gifts from the Holy Spirit to you to help you to minister, they are for the purpose of not your own personal edification. They are for the purpose of ministering to the whole body, the whole assembly of believers and assisting and helping with those things. Um, we have worship leaders. We have teachers. We have a whole range of different folks. We have people who have need and people can pray for them. Uh, but not everybody has the same gifting. Not everybody has the same skill. I certainly do not have the skill to get up here and lead a worship with you. I can pray. Um, I can hum. <laughs> but, but now you're about to tap me out as to what I'm able to do. And even when I uh, do the cantorals and some of the liturgy, I think the only reason I'm able to pull it off is because it's in Hebrew, because if I had it in English, I probably wouldn't be able to even sing the melody that goes with it. I, I don't know what it is with me about that, but that's not my gift. And I've always told people, I said, uh, when I come into the assembly, you have a choice. Do you want me to use all my lungs singing for a whole bunch? Uh, at which point I won't be able to teach because I haven't got the lung power left, or do you want me to teach and then I'll hum along when we worship? Or, or and the same goes for dancing. You want me to dance, or did you want me to teach? Because I'm, I can't do both in in the same assembly time. Um, and, I, and I guess I want to, um, based on what Paul is saying here, he, you know, he doesn't give the answers, but it's obvious to us as to what the answers are. Do all have the gift of healing? The, the answer is no. No, we don't. Some do. And it's wonderful when they do. Do we all have the gift of miracles? No. No, we don't. But some do. And again, it's helpful to the assembly and, and, and so forth. You don't need everybody in the assembly with the same gift. You know, it's a little bit like going to a banquet, and the only food they have there is chocolate cupcakes. Everybody just does chocolate cupcakes. There's no chef back there that can do a main meal or whatever. We just eat chocolate cupcakes to your heart's content. I mean, how satisfying would that be to you? How, how supportive would that be to your assembly, to your banquet? Well, it's only a piece. You need the whole range of things to have a sense of fulfillment and to be a part uh, of the assembly. The, um, his final comment here was, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. If you go to chapter 14, where it tells us all about the different gifts and so forth, the one that stands out the most is the one about prophesying. Now, the prophesying gift that he's speaking of here is not about the foretelling of the future. The prophesying he's speaking here is to speak forth boldly the things of the Lord. And since a prophet is only supposed to speak what the Lord has instructed him to speak, then he should be for sure using some of the material that God has already given and to speak it forth and powerfully into the lives of people and into the assembly to move the people and move the assembly along with what has been the instruction of the Lord. And so I always uh, emphasize that that is, means speak forth, to speak boldly. Now, as you all know, uh, most of us, 
don't like to hear someone who speaks very directly. We much prefer what we call the passive voice to the active voice. But a prophet doesn't use the passive voice. He uses the active voice. He speaks directly to things. He, he shows cause and effect. And he talks about things like the soul that sins is the soul that dies. I mean, it's direct. It's profound. We're not sugarcoating it. We're not laying a lot of mitigation stuff in there. He's just telling you straight up, this is how it is. Um, most people don't like that. You know, most most groups are, you know, they're taken back by it. And by the way, it is very powerful. Let's, let's be honest about it. It, it. it emotionally affects you. But yet, that's what God sends sometimes. Not everybody's a prophet. Not everybody does that. Um, and because it's such a powerful thing, and because it grabs the attention of the people who hear it, there's some people who desire that gift. And by the way, he talks about desiring that gift. But then sometimes they don't have the gift, and they try to replicate what the gift does. That's when we have some struggles, and that's when we have some difficulties uh, for it. So prophets need to be proved. They need to be proved out. You need to hear what they say and see how things turn out. And then you have the confirmation. But at the same time, Paul teaches us to not despise any prophetic statement. To not look down upon any, but to examine everything carefully. And so when a person comes and wants to speak into your life to encourage you, direct you uh, along spiritual lines, you need to take it into account, receive it, hear it, measure it, examine it, and, uh, and, and see if it's the word of the Lord, you know, for your life. Um, and this is one of the most powerful uh, that is in the assembly. As I look back on my history uh, with the Messianic movement and see others who have been in leadership positions, uh, the vast majority of these that I know have probably used this gift. They, God has used them to speak forth and to address particular topics that many others would have shied away from. And I remember uh, the first time I stood in the assembly and for the first time directly spoke, and by the way, these were all Sunday-keeping church people, and spoke directly to them that the commandment of the Lord is to keep the Sabbath. He never commanded you to keep Sunday. And oh, by the way, the Messiah, the person that we love, and we say loves us, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And how profound that is. And the whole measurement of, of our whole lives throughout creation is the keeping of the Sabbath. You know, and some try to argue, well, you know, that got changed by them. No, it didn't. No, it did not. Now, just the statement I just said, you know, no, it didn't. That's a prophetic statement. That's a statement that goes out and speaks directly to it and offers correction and specific edification and so forth. Those, very few people can really do that. Oh, by the way, when you do it, you have to do it in love. You have to be loving the brethren and at the same time do that. And that gets tricky because you have to be sensitive 
and compassionate, you know, like the Lord is to us. By the way, the very next chapter that follows what we just did is 1 Corinthians 13, which talks about love and defines for us biblically what love is and how to love. And it is understood that if you try to take one of these spiritual gifts, for example, prophecy, and you go out and you make proclamation and you do it without love, if you do not uh, have the love of God to share this with, with his people, that you're nothing more than a couple of clanging cymbals. By the way, I don't know if you've ever had the experience, maybe some of you have, where you're just kind of standing there having a good time, you're minding your own business, and somebody walks up behind you with a set of those cymbals and <clears throat> hits them. It is so irritating and so shocking to your system that you'll turn around and you'll want to smack them. I mean, you want to knock those symbols out of their head. You want to beat them over the head with those things. I mean, you want to give back to them what you just got, which was harmful and, and hurt you and, and shocked you and, and so forth. Paul says that if you do not use these gifts in love, that it's like clanging symbols, you know, to people. Well, that's not edifying and that's not what we want to do. Um, the idea, again, going back to our basic theme of this Torah portion and, and this portion tied in with it, is that we're supposed to be ministering and assisting so that all of us become part of the body. That all of us join in. All the parts are important. Every person is important in the assembly. Um, I'll share one last uh, thing with you. Um, many years ago, when I first got out of the Navy, I became very good friends with a retired Marine Brigadier General. You know, here I am, a little enlisted guy from the Navy, and I get to work with this retired general, and he was very beloved. He was of high esteem and, and highly respected. And we got to the point where we'd bring our little brown bags in, bags, lunch bags in, and we would have lunch together and we'd chat. And I thoroughly enjoyed my conversations with uh, uh, Kenny. His name was Brigadier General Houghton. And uh, one day he shared with me, he said, Monty, he said, do you know the difference between a good general and a great general? And I said to him, I said, Kenny, I don't know the answer to that, but I sure would like to hear your answer to that. And he said to me, he said, well, a great general never complains about any of his countrymen that come to join him. Now think about that for a moment. Usually when a congregation of people come, there's a tendency on the part of the leaders to, if you will, evaluate the different folks that come in. And they kind of rank people and they put people in a pecking order of the certain people they like more and the others are kind of just there, but they don't really pay a lot of attention to them. A good general will look at his good troops and get his best troops in the right positions and organize them and so forth. But a great general remembers the lowest of the troops. And the ones that are not the dynamic leaders, the ones, but they're there. And they're willing to come and fight with him against the enemy. 
and they're needed. We need every one of the troops, you know, to accomplish the things that we need to do. And I have taken his counsel from that, and when I've been a part of assemblies and in leadership for different congregations, I do not look down on those of the, the lowliest that might come into the assembly. I remember, in fact, one young lady that was the daughter of a lady, single lady, and she had a speech impediment. And, uh, you know, she didn't have real control of all of her functions, and she had to be assisted all the time. I watched how God used her in the assembly to unite the assembly. People who came and offered their care and assistance. And, and I'm look, I said, look at that. You know, that little gal that came in here who really can't function very well, needs assistance just for basic things. She comes into the assembly and she got everybody here to be to care and to love and and to do good to her. And I said, I stand up and try to say to people, love your neighbor. And everybody goes, yawn. But God brings this person in and, and they do it. So that's when I began to learn every one of us is important. Every single one of us. And by the way, according to the counting of the people, everyone counts. Everyone is counted and to be a part of the whole assembly, regardless of who they are. I hope that you're encouraged this uh, Shabbat. And as we finish counting out the Omer, that you will know that you're counted as well before the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, thank you, Lord, for who you are. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for making us all different from one another. And yet, we can come and be part of the whole assembly together. And we can be part of your assembly. Thank you for your love and your individual care for us. Teach us, Lord, to value ourselves correctly and to value all those that are in our midst. And to lift up the weaker and uh, to encourage the strong when they become discouraged. Let us be helpful to every person in the assembly that you make. We ask all of this in the name of Yeshua Messiah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. And now we leave you with the ironic blessing. Bless you and keep you.
May the Lord make His face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Shabbat shalom. When the sun has set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around singing Shabbat Shalom. Everybody sing Shalom. Shalom. Shalom.